Amen. So thank you, Jonathan. Um, we, <clears throat> excuse me, we begin this morning uh, in a new series that we're going to do from now until the beginning of school. We normally do this, I think you're aware, uh, during the summer. We kind of take a break for whatever, from whatever we've been doing and try to address a topic that's of special need or concern uh, for our church. And, uh, and so, you know, when I thought about doing that, of course I thought, you know, we need to do, here's what we need to do. We need to do a series on the incommunicable attributes of God. Isn't that the most Presbyterian thing you've ever heard in your entire life? <laughs> and so that's what we're going to do. But let me explain uh, what I mean by that. Um, this morning we're going to talk about, just every week we're going to talk about one aspect of, of who God is. This morning we're going to talk about the fact that God is infinite. And by infinite I mean that he has no limits. And so when we say he's omniscient, we mean that he, there's no limit to what he knows. When we say he's omnipotent, we mean that there's no limit to what he can do. And so every week for... The rest of the summer, we're going to take one attribute of God, one facet of what God is like, and we're going to talk about it and what it means for us being made in his image to glory in him and also to embrace our own humanness. Now, the way we're going to go about this is to not just take one passage of scripture, but to look at various parts of the Bible to kind of bring out this idea of who God is and what it means for us from different places. Just because we are doing more of a topical study, you can still preach exegetically preaching topically. I want to make that point. And we're going to try to do that. And, uh, and so instead of just going to one passage and really kind of working our way through the passage, we're going to take a, different, you know, a few different places and we're going to kind of bring some things out from all those different places in the scriptures. So this morning you'll see that our, our scripture reading comes from John chapter 3. Verses 22 through 30, and then we're just going to pick up Psalm 145.3 and Exodus 15.11. And th that those are printed for you in your worship folder. Uh, they'll be on the screen behind me, and uh, you, you can try to follow along. Go to those places in, in your Bible if you'd like. Uh, but let's, let's begin uh, reading together. With this scene of the end of John the Baptist's ministry at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry and this transition that's taking place, okay? Let's go to John 3. Uh, verses 22 through 30. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. We went to Israel in May, I mean in March, and we went to this place where this, this stuff was happening. It's fascinating. There isn't a lot of water there, I can tell you. Uh, verse 24, John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who, is he, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear, witness, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. And then Psalm 145, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Who is like you, O Lord? Exodus 15. Who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? This is the word of the Lord. 
Two questions just by way of introduction this morning, if you would allow me. Uh, why do this, and what is our goal? Why, why this series? What are we trying to accomplish? And so let me answer the first question first, uh, talk about why for just a minute. Much of what we will talk about comes from a book. In fact, the graphic that you saw go out on Facebook and that you'll see on the app and on the website comes from a book by Jen Wilkin, who is on staff at Village Church in Texas, and she's written a, a wonderful book called None Like Him. And really, it's one of the best books I've read in, in a number of years, and so you should buy it. Uh, but if you buy it, don't read it, at least not until we're done with the sermon series, or you're going to be disappointed to learn how unoriginal most of the sermons that we preach actually are. Okay, so buy it, but hold off. It's like, the, you know, the teacher, don't, don't go ahead, don't, don't read ahead, or, or you'll be, you'll be bored. Um, every time a new book comes out about the attributes of God, I buy it. Because when I was a college student, uh, I read a book. I pulled it off my shelf this week by a guy named A.W. Pink, uh, who some of you are familiar with. And the book was called Gleanings in the Godhead. I, I inherited a library. It was one of the first ones I pulled out. It's since been republished uh, under the title The Attributes of God. And uh, reading that book changed me. It really did. It just—it really changed me. In John's gospel, it says that eternal life is getting to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And so the Trinity, we believe, is a community of persons. And therefore, the key to life and joy and peace and spiritual power is to get to know what God is like as a person. And that's what happened to me in, in reading and kind of studying my way through that book. So in my college years, I cut my teeth theologically on books about God's attributes like A.W. Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy and Stephen Charnock's The Existence and Attributes of God and all of these sorts of books. I know that makes me weird, okay, but not as weird as Jonathan who likened, he just talked about soccer and wonder, right? Are y'all with me? We're wondering at the soccer players. I just, I love you. I thought it was so funny. Wow. Just, anyway, sorry. That's deflection. I'm trying to make myself not feel so geeky because you're more geeky than me. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so imagine, and we were roommates in college, so imagine Jonathan and I, if you like, sitting around reading A.W. Tozer and A.W. Pink, because that's pretty much what we did anyway. Uh, but what we learned, and what I learned in that time in my life, is that everything in the Christian life flows from worship, from what we know about God. And, and I really believe... I really believe that the spiritual anemia uh, that is so prevalent in uh, and among Christians today is because God is too small and people are too big. And so that's why. That's why we need to do this. Now, what's the goal? And I'll tell you, I really started thinking about going in this direction at the beginning of the year when we were in, in Romans. And if you remember, in Romans chapter 1, it says that the root of every sin... The root of all sin, according to Paul in Romans chapter 1, is a failure to glorify God and give him thanks. That's Romans 1.21. And then in Romans 3, he goes on to describe sin again as falling short of the glory of God. You're probably familiar with that verse. And then in Romans 4, in talking about Abraham, and this is really where I kind of said, okay, something's happening here. So even, you know, this summer we may need to pick this back up. In Romans 4, if you remember, he's talking about Abraham, and, and it says that Abraham did not waver concerning God's promises to him, even though he was old, and even though Sarah was old, and barren, and everything in their life seemed to be stacked against what God said he was going to do. It says, instead, he grew strong in his faith, and here's the phrase, as he gave glory to God, Romans 4.20. So, 
So spiritual weakness comes from a shortage of God's glory, and spiritual progress comes from more of God's glory. And that word glory is a word that means significance or weight or worth. So in other words, the root of all of our trouble, no matter what trouble it is, is that God's character and his works do not have the proper weight and significance that they should in our lives. See? And so the key to greater faith is more glory. Abraham looked around at his circumstances. I think you're probably familiar with that story. You're going to have a son, God said. And he looked around, and he's 95 years old, and Sarah's 90, and she's been barren her whole life, and nothing seems to be, you know, in keeping with what God has said. And, he, and so he looks around, but then what he does is as he looks around, he begins to think about the Lord, about his power and his word and his trustworthiness and God's character and his promise were more real to him than the difficulty of his circumstances. Right, and that was it. That Abraham did not view God through the lens of his circumstances. It's the other way around. He viewed his circumstances through the lens of his theology. So he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, it says there, as God became bigger and bigger and bigger to him through his experience and study of him. And that's, that's what happened to me in college reading theology books in the dark on a Friday night. You know, God got really big, and I got really small, and it changed me. And it's what I'm hoping for all of us in this series. And so if you want a mission statement, if you want to make a prayer card, which would be great to do for our time these next few weeks, John 3.30 is a great, is a great place to go. John 3.30, just write it down somewhere, put it on a mirror, and just pray it. He must increase. I must decrease. And that can be a number of different things. I mean, it, it, it can be something as simple as think more about him and less about you. Spend more time thinking about and meditating on him than you do what's going wrong in your life or what you, or what you need to change, whatever it might be. And so that's what we're hoping for. Now, here's how we're going to do this. Every week we're going to have the same outline, which is really, really uh, neat because we, maybe we can get used to thinking through uh, things this way. But if you see there, I've given it to you four points. It doesn't mean the sermon's going to be longer than normal. Uh, we'll be just as short, hopefully. But here's what we want to do. We want to say first, what's God like? We want to start by glorifying God because that really is where everything starts. But as we discover what God is like, then we want to see the way, secondly, we are prone to sinfully desire to be like him. There's a, way to, there's a good way to want to be like him. Then there's a sinful, wrong way to desire to be like him. Thirdly, we want to ask then, what does it look like for us to be joyful in embracing our own limits? And then lastly, how does the gospel help us decrease so that he can increase? So we want to glorify God. We want to see the way we grasp for godness. We want to turn instead to this vision of gracious humanness and embracing our limits. And we want to end with the gospel, which is the spiritual power for us to be small so that God can be big. So let's start with God. Can we do that? Uh, let's just start there this morning. When I say that God is infinite, what, do, what does that mean? How does that lead us to worship? And here's the way I would, I would say this to you this morning. When we talk about God being infinite, we mean that he is limitless in all of his attributes. God's love is an infinite love. There is no limit to it. There is no beginning. There is no end. Uh, his power is a limitless power. He never gets tired. His patience is limitless. That's one of my favorite things about him. What about you? He never, you might get tired of you, right? And, 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 and other people might get tired of you. God never gets tired of you. There's no such thing as compassion fatigue with him. 
There's always more grace in him than there is sin in us. And the, Bible, the Bible's word for this is the word greatness that you see in Psalm 145.3. Look there at that verse again. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. Here's how I would translate that for you. God is big and therefore the only way to praise him is in a big way. That's what he means. You don't worship a God like this with small half-hearted worship. The verse in Psalm 145 goes on to say, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. In other words, his greatness cannot be measured. And now imagine that. He is one that is immeasurable. There is no measuring God. But with you, on the day that you were born, the very first thing, the very truest thing of you and I in our humanity is on the day we were born, the very first thing that happened to us, we were measured. I mean, when I go to the hospital to see a new, a new baby, it's the first question I ask. How big was she? Well, seven pounds, 10 ounces, 21 inches long, whatever it might be. Jen Wilkin, and I'm going to refer to her a lot. She says, this is the first legally attested evidence that I am not God. We are measurable. God is not. No one can place any aspect of who God is on a scale or against a yardstick. A.W. Tozer says it like this, and I hope to quote from some of these guys, uh, but this is, this is a great, great little, little paragraph. He says, measurement is a way created things have of accounting for themselves, but God is above all of this, outside of it, beyond it. Our concepts of measurement embrace mountains and men's atom, ma- mountains and men, atoms and stars, gravity, energy, numbers, and speed, but never God. We cannot speak of measure or amount or size or weight and at the same time be speaking about him. For these tell of degrees and there are no degrees in him. All that he is, he is without growth or addition or development. Nothing in God is less or more large or small. He simply is. (laughs) And this immeasurable God is a measuring God. Think about that. He himself may not be able to be measured, but he is the one who measures all things. There's a book, I mean, think about this. There's a book in our Bible called Numbers. All the Excel spreadsheet junkies said amen, right? I mean, it's godly to love Excel because God loves Excel. We have a book called Numbers. God concerns himself. Read the Old Testament with measurements for arcs and tabernacles and temples and cities. He sets boundaries for the oceans. He counts the numbers of hair on each head and the grains of sand on Anna Maria Island. He knows the stars by name, and it is his right to do so. And ultimately, he is the one that measures us. There are books in heaven in which are written every deed of our lives and every careless thought that enters our minds. That is what we mean when we say that he is infinite. And knowing this about God, this is part of the reason why we are such lovers of measurement, because we've been made in God's image. We've been made in the image of this God that I'm describing. And so we wear Fitbits that count our steps and heart monitors that measure our vital signs. Every 
grocery item in your pantry has a label on it that tells you the number of calories and fat grams and carbs that are in that thing. In our house, I started thinking about this. I don't know if Ashley's even aware of this, but in our house, uh, there's a clock in every room. And I, that probably means bad things about us, I don't know, to help us keep the time. I mean, I have, I have an awesome Excel spreadsheet on my computer to track our spending. Our social media accounts tell us how many friends we have and how many likes all of our posts get. And did you know there's an Apple update coming? Uh, all the parents are going to be so excited about this. I learned this last night. There's an Apple update coming that's going to keep track of the amount of time you spend on your phone and the amount of time you open it. I mean, it's going to like tell you exactly what your patterns are and your habits. We measure everything. But why? Why? Why, why are there tide tables to tell us when the fishing's good? I mean, why do we measure everything this way? It's part of our being made in the image of God for sure, but what I want you to see is that it can easily become something very sinister. It can become a sinful grasping for Godness. Listen, listen to Jen Wilkin again. She says, measurement is the millennia-old obsession of the limited human who, perceiving his own limits, seeks to transcend them by quantifying his world. That is a, that is a fascinating statement. Then she goes on to say, that which we cannot measure, we think we can some, or excuse me, she says, that which we can measure, we think we can to some degree control. And so secondly, we want to talk about sin. Uh, if that's who God is, what about sin? And that's a fairly good description. The Bible defines sin in places like Genesis 3, for example, as our grasping for godness. In this case, for a desire to control everything and everybody else, including God, and to be controlled by none. I mean, you know this. Put a toddler in a room with 20 toys and tell him. You can play with any of these toys you want to except that one toy over there. What's he going to do? If he's a godly child, he'll wait five seconds, but then he will go directly for the toy. Eventually, the little, the little child will become discontent until he has the one forbidden object. Why? Because we resent limits. We are line crossers, boundary breakers, fence jumpers. We are not content to remain within the limits God has ordained and created for us. We're made in God's image, which means we're made to reflect God and to be like him. But here's the thing, but only in some ways. There are some parts of Godness that belong to God and God alone. And so theologians have always distinguished between God's communicable and his incommunicable attributes. And his communicable attributes are the traits uh, that he shares with us. The parts of his character and person which he makes possible for us to share with him and he, he gives to us. They're true of him and they can and should be true of us as well. His incommunicable attributes are the traits that are only true of him. And we have no right and we have no share in them. And so I think we have a slide. Uh, can we put that slide up? There we go. And so you see on the one hand, on, on, the, on the left you see the things that only God is. And on the right you see, those are his incommunicable, incommunicable attributes. On the right are the communicable attributes, and we have to make a distinction between these two things. So, for example, the Bible says, be holy, for I am holy. That's 1 Peter 1, chapter 5, chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus said, love your neighbor, love one another as I've loved you, John 13, 34. Again, he said, uh, be merciful, 
as the Father in heaven is merciful, Luke 6.36. That's what it means to image God, that we should strive to possess and reflect the attributes in the list to the right on my slide back there. That's what it means to be conformed to the image of Christ. But the list on the left, okay, the list on the left, those are the things that only God is. And yet, here's what's, here's what's the problem. Now, what's true of us is we want, we want everything on the left to be true of us as well. Uh, what we really want to be, more than, more than anything else, we want to be infinite and self-sufficient and omnipotent and so forth. We actually want everything to the left of that slide a whole lot more than we want the things on the right. We be omnip- we'd rather be omnipotent than gracious or kind or patient. And so Jen Wilkins says, designed to reflect his glory We choose instead to rival it. We do so by reaching for those attributes that are only true of God. Rather than worship and trust the omniscience of God, we desire to be all-knowing ourselves. Rather than celebrate and revere his omnipotence, we seek ultimate power in our own sphere of influence. Like our father Adam and our mother Eve, we long for that which is intended only for God. Rejecting our God-given limits and craving the limitlessness we foolishly believe we are capable of wielding and entitled to possess. We gravitate toward the list on the left, not bringing glory to God by mirroring him to the creation, but actually seeking to steal glory from him. So when we read about Satan tempting Eve in the garden and saying, you shall be like God. Here, here's the problem. When we hear Satan say that, you shall be like God, we imagine he meant the things on the left and not the things on the right. And being like God is actually a very good thing if we mean the stuff on the right. Sin ignores the right column and grasps for the left. Think about that. And so sanctification, more and more, this is the way I would put it to you, sanctification means abandoning the left column in favor of becoming more and more characterized by the right. There's actually a truth in the serpent's words. You shall be like God, but it's a truth that's obscured. Rather than being like God in his unlimited divinity, we are to be like God in our limited humanity. Image-bearing, listen to this, image-bearing means becoming fully human, not fully divine. Image bearing, bearing, excuse me, image bearing means becoming fully human, not fully divine. It means reflecting as a limited being the perfections of a limitless God. So in your call to worship in Jeremiah 10, Jonathan went back there and I'll go back there one more time where Jeremiah says, there is none like you, O Lord. You are great and your name is great in might. God is great means that he is like no other, that he stands alone, that he He's incomparable. It's the same language in that little verse in Exodus 15. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, doing wonders? All of those words there, majesty and holy and awesome, they are meant to convey that there is no comparison, that God has no rival. And that's why the John 3 passage is so important and why I chose it. John's disciples, you'll see there, are concerned over the swelling numbers in the crowds following Jesus because they are becoming marginalized. Their movement is coming to an end. And so they see Jesus as a competing movement to their own, and and so John has to set them straight. John 3, 30, he must increase, but I 
must decrease. And his words are the reversal of every sinful impulse to seek to become God in God's place. Sin is a grasping for the greatness that belongs to God alone. To have it for ourselves and to have others think of us like that. And the kinds of behavior this leads to, you can imagine, overworking, overparenting, over anything. Finding yourself constantly in overfunctioning roles where you're doing too much of the work, where you feel responsible for things that aren't your responsibility and you can't say no. Of course, none of that from personal experience for me. I mean, which all leads to burnout and fatigue and anxiety and high blood pressure or, or the other side, pride and self-righteousness and resentment and breakdown. You with me? So instead, instead the goal should be something else. And we come to the third point. The goal should be to be fully human, to be embracing of our limits then. And I've called it gracious humanness because it takes grace. It takes grace to reach for God-likeness, and it takes grace to embrace our own limits. And I would say to you, this passage from John 3 saved my life. Uh, John's response to his disciples there did some open-heart surgery on me. Look what he says, verse 27 first. He says, as they are complaining, he's becoming too popular. What are we going to do? We're losing, you know, we're losing the crowds. They're all going to him. Oh, no. What are we going to do? And John has to first remind them, verse 27, a person cannot receive even one, I love hype, even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Do you know what that means? He says, everything is a gift. None of us are in charge of anything. None of us are in control of our lives. Everything's gift. And then he goes on in verse uh, 28, and this, this phrase, particularly for me as a pastor, but for you too, this phrase just really landed on my soul when he says, uh, a person can't receive even one thing unless it's given to him. And then verse 28, I am not the Christ. Uh, we are all prone to make too little of God by drawing improper attention to ourselves and we cannot properly magnify him without confessing that we are not him so this is the way I've started going about my life in my marriage I am not the Christ uh, in my parenting I am not the Christ it is not my heart for my kids or my power that saves in pastoring I am not the Christ. I don't have all the answers. I can't be everywhere for everyone. I have no magic fixes. Pastoral ministry comes with a huge temptation and expectation to be the Christ. To be and do what in reality only God can be and do. But can I just make confession this morning? I am not the Christ. I'm going to let you down. I'm going to not show up. I'm going to make things worse and not make them better. I am not the omni and to be and to do what in reality only God can do and be. There are limits to what I can do and be, and it feels so good to get that off my chest. Do you know what I mean? To say that, do you know how cathartic it is to say that publicly? You should try it too. Go home next time you're in a fight with your spouse. I'm not the Christ. <laughs> Stop expecting me to be, right? Your kids, parents, your kids need to, you need to sit your kids down and say to them, I am not the Christ, but I know him. And I can lead you to him, but it's not me. And it's not just pastors, you're not the Christ. Stop acting like you are. Stop acting like it's your power and your decisions that saved the day. You're not the omni. 
You cannot circumvent the limits of your humanity. If you're facing problems, the solution to those problems is not for you to figure out how to break the bonds of your creaturely limits to find more power and more time and more ideas and more information. Almost always, that's the problem. The solution is to embrace your limits. As the apostle said, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When? When I'm weak. And that's what it means to be human, made in the image of God, to know the ways we're meant to be like him and to know the ways we're not. And from that comes the prayer in John 3.30. He must increase and I must decrease. It's a prayer of realism and dependence. Think about that, realism, about my own need, about my own lack, about my own limits. I must decrease because I can't do it on my own anyway. I must decrease. Not resignation, not cynicism, realism. And then dependence on his strength in grace, in whatever situation I'm in. And let me just suggest, before I come to the very end here, two practical uh, ways that, that, you, that you do that, that you embrace those limitations. The first would be uh, that you become a person who would stop measuring yourself. Can you allow yourself to be human? Admit your limits. Confess your sins. Work hard. I mean, you're, you're made to work hard. But to not work too hard, take a break. Learn to Sabbath. Brendan Manning used to talk about being gentle with yourself. Prioritize your physical and emotional health over your to-do list and manage people's expectations. Don't stop measuring yourself so much. Stop, stop disallowing yourself to, to live within the limits of what it means to have a body that gets tired. Is anybody tired? I'm in my 40s now. I hurt all the time. Like 9 o'clock, I'm like, it's time to go to bed, man. I'm tired. We were at a soccer game last night in Orlando at like 1030. I'm like, I'm so tired. I just want to go to sleep. Because we inhabit bodies that physically run out of juice and, soul, and, 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 you know, and emotional capacities that, that really are not limitless. Stop measuring yourself. But then the other thing is stop measuring other people too. Can you allow others to be human too? Don't demand of the people in your life that they be perfect. Don't expect them to be God. Everyone has limits. No husband or wife or friend or hero possesses limitless lovability. At some point in your life, everybody is going to let you down because they're only human. And why, by the way? Why is that such a bad thing? And I'm really convinced that most of the relationships where there's a lot of disappointment and hurt feelings and, um, and pain, it's because the relationship started with too high of expectations. There was idolatry at the beginning that's being unraveled. So what do you do when that happens? What do you do when, when the honeymoon is over and it's messy and hard? We have to learn to measure as God measures. And let me just finish there. What do I mean by that? Well, how does God measure? And let me say it this way, okay? And please don't be the theology police on me uh, on this because I'm not sure. This isn't the, don't you love it when your pastor says, I'm really not sure of the theology of this, but I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> it's for shock factor, okay? Because I'm just trying to get, I'm trying to get inside our hard hearts for a minute. If I was to tell you this is the way God measures, I would say like this, there's only one thing. There's one thing in the whole universe that God does not measure. Listen to Romans 4 again. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. If you are in Christ, God does not measure your sins. Need proof? More proof? 
Micah 7. Who is like you, O Lord, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? You cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Hebrews 8, 12, I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark, that's a word that means measure. If you should mark, if you should measure our sins, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. Here's the gospel. Jesus, uh, excuse me, God measured Jesus according to our sins. And now he measures us according to the record established by his life, death, and resurrection. If he should mark sins, who could stand? But if your faith is in Jesus Christ, he doesn't keep track of your sins. Jesus paid for them all with his blood, and, and the Bible says that God remembers them no more. Now, isn't that good news? Isn't that good news? So stop measuring your sins, Christian. Church, stop keeping track of other people's, of one another's sins, because God doesn't do that. I mean, the only thing in the whole universe that God does not measure are the sins of his people. I mean, that's amazing. Look at John 3 one more time. Did you notice the, the image John uses to describe Jesus' ministry? He calls himself the friend of the bride, bridegroom. That's, that is the best man, which means that Jesus is, is the bridegroom, John 3, 29. So, and there's biblical precedent for this, this metaphor. Isaiah 54, for example, in Isaiah 62, which says, As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so your God rejoices over you. Have you ever been to a wedding and looked at the bridegroom's face when his bride's coming down the aisle? That's how the Lord feels about you. Don't forget Revelation uh, chapter 19, which pictures the consummation of the ages as a wedding feast. Do you know what all of that means? It means that God is great, it's true, but he's not only great, he's also good. God is not safe, but, you know, C.S. Lewis said, but you're safe with him because he's good. The gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't make God safe. It doesn't make God little. It doesn't make God safe. It makes you safe with him because he's good. So now if your faith is in Christ, his greatness doesn't have to scare you. It can be a source of comfort and strength. You can glory in his greatness and in your weakness because it's not a threat. He could squash you like a grape. Sure. But he would never do that to you because he rejoices over you the way a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Isaiah 40, 17, all the nations are as nothing before him, but you're not nothing. You're of infinite worth. All of his greatness is aimed at your well-being because you are the object of his affection and joy. Do you believe that? Ask yourself that question. Do you really believe that? That all of his greatness is aimed at your good because you are the object of his affection and joy? You don't have to be all-powerful because he is, and he is for you. And that means that all of his power is working all things together for your good. You don't have to be all-knowing because he is, and he loves you, and you can trust him. And you don't have to be everywhere all the time because he is. And by the way, that's way better. You, your job is to stop trying to be what only God is. And to stop asking that of other people too, because that's where all of our problems are coming from. And instead, instead of all this, I got to, I got to, I got to, I got to, to just stop, to look up, to behold the greatness of the one we've come to worship today, and to say with the psalmist, who is like you, O Lord? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. 
You, Lord, are mighty and your faithfulness. Who is like you, O Lord? Well, definitely not me. You with me? So let's pray. Can we pray? So, Father, in these last moments, as we come to the end of our service and sing to you now, I do pray that, um, that the impulse, I think the impulse, I know the impulse of my heart, I should say, is when I begin to contemplate the things that I know I need to go from here. I'm, I'm maybe even eager to leave as fast as I possibly can to get back to trying to solve the problems of my life. I know my thoughts naturally turn to myself, to my strategies, to my strength, trying to figure out, you know, it's not been working, so what's the next thing I'm going to try instead of just stopping in the middle of that wrestling, in the middle of feeling uh, the threat of my own smallness, and feeling uh, the, the, limit, the limited nature of my own power and strength and wisdom, and wanting to just... Um, to turn back to myself and instead, in these moments, instead, the thing to do would be to say, you know what, my life's not defined by any of that. Instead, it's defined by your greatness because of the gospel of Jesus that is now at work for my good. And so turn our eyes to behold and gaze upon you that we would worship because the solution to our anxiety is worship. The solution to our fear is worship. The solution to our pride and our grasping is worship. And so help us to end this service in that way today. And we pray. All these things in your name. Amen. Amen. So as he sends us now, if you feel tired and feel at the end of your strength, it's not a bad thing. It's actually a very good thing because when you come to the end of your strength, you actually move into his. Right? And if you uh, lack wisdom and you need it, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing because when you have no wisdom, he is wisdom for us. Uh, That's what these words mean, that all of his greatness that we're going to study and celebrate this summer is not just in the abstract, but all of it comes to bear upon our lives uh, through his heart for us, that he sends us in the promise of the sheltering greatness that he provides in the goodness that his heart offers. And so receive these words and go. Uh, Go in weakness, trusting in his strength. Go in foolishness, trusting in his wisdom. Uh, Go in your limited capacities, being as human as you possibly can, because it's the way to glorify him. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.